The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Cult for the Culture podcast are solely those of the individuals involved. The content presented is not a substitute for seeking or seeing a licensed mental health professional. Know what's up next, know what's up next. Healthy pleasure with it, Cult for the Culture. Better tune in, better tune in. Big sis, get him, big sis, get him. Cult for the Culture, Cult for the Culture, Cult. Hey y'all, welcome to the Cult for the Culture podcast. I'm your host, Tiana Renee, the Culture's Advocate. On this show, we have solo and interview-based episodes with individuals from different walks of life who are dedicated to being the change within the culture as it relates to various topics and their effects on the world of mental health. Today we have a very special guest, Miss Corey Box, who is a fourth year medical student. She is also my line sister and member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. I would like to welcome Corey Box to the show. Hey Corey. Good afternoon, everyone. A pleasure to be here. As Tiana said, I'm a fourth year medical student at Ross University School of Medicine. I will be graduating this upcoming spring and entering the medicine world. Yes, upcoming spring. It's crazy. It's not crazy. Probably don't feel fast to you, but for the rest of us, it's like, dang, Corey really about to get out this thing. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Say it again, because we know the journey. <laughs> All right. So I want to go ahead and start with my shout outs, which is, of course, to Ms. Corey and all of the other black healthcare professionals that are out there advocating for change and to stop the racial disparities that are happening within the healthcare system and to make it an equal playing field for us all. So I appreciate that. Taking on that fight because I know it's not easy, but I know it's necessary. So thank y'all and shout out to y'all. All right, Miss Corey, let's start off with your favorite seven. Check this out. What do you like to do? I'm gonna give you my top three. Top three. Top three are like no technology time. That's what I call it. So I do a lot. I'm involved in a lot of groups, um, especially with like health policy and legislation. And so a lot of times it requires action in real time. There is no time to say, oh, I'll follow up with you in two to three days. So sometimes I do have to take a step back. So I do no technology time. Um, another thing is working out. Uh, he and I actually used to do it a lot when we lived together in Greensboro, North Carolina, when we were in undergrad and grad school. So I still enjoy doing that. And my last thing is like, um, Tiana's mentioned it before, is like using oil diffusers, essential oils, you know, running a bath, just kind of doing a spa type thing. Those are my top three. So before we recorded, I was telling Corey to try putting her diffuser in the bathroom. My best friend actually told me this. Put the diffuser in the bathroom, turn on the shower to the hottest that it can go, close the door, let it kind of steam up in there first with the diffuser going, and then try to take your shower and it gives it like that spa effect of like, mmm, the aroma. When you, <laughs> That's the best way I could think of it. But it's, it's nice, I really like it. All right, Miss Corey, so Tell the people why you decided to take this track of becoming a doctor. We just talked about it's not easy, so. No, it's not. It's long, it's tedious, but definitely worth it. There are two main reasons. The first one being, um, this is the best of both worlds. Before Tiana and I became Deltas, I actually, the first time I met her on campus was in a chemistry class. Um, that's a funny story. Right, right she's snickering <laughs> because she wasn't nice to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, in a world where a lot of things are gray, science is one of those subjects that it is or it isn't. It's very exact. So I enjoy studying in that way. Um, I also enjoy 
um, just understanding. And I know a lot of people probably don't appreciate or take for granted like what our bodies do to keep us going from day to day. Even with Kiana and I sitting here just breathing and talking, like it takes a lot. Um, so I just have a really big appreciation for the body and what it does and its resiliency. Um, and then the last thing is like for the culture. So literally we need more faces that look like you and I in the medical field. Um, the statistic, last statistic from last studies show that 2% of physicians in the United States are black. Um, so that's not a lot at all. That's One, like two? Zero, two? Yes. Um, so we're needed. And so I think it's important that we engage ourselves within the medical community at all levels, um, but the particular level that I wanted to um, approach was being a physician. So that's why I chose it. That 2% stat just, wow. I need to check and see what our stats are, because I don't know. But I know it's probably somewhere around the same, to be honest. And you think about medical school too, it's really hard. And so the dropout rates are probably high. Yeah, or, and also the, because it's 2% for black physicians as a whole, it's more probably dominated by black women. I don't, and I want to explore that more. That can probably be another episode about why black women tend to take up leadership and do certain things I don't I don't know it's usually if you look at the leadership of a lot of stuff it's usually taken on by black women but there is an initiative to get black males um, more involved to expose them to medicine earlier and to provide them with support because they are actually interested in the sciences and science technology engineering and mathematics but just that lack of support kind of keeps them from pursuing medicine because it's long as T said but it's also very expensive so it's not just as simple as I'm interested so let me Right, you gotta pay for it too. You know, money don't grow on trees. I mean, it do, but not for us. <laughs> so, the topic for today's show is Black Health Matters. Corey has already started talking about why it's so important to have Black faces in high places as it relates to the medical field. We know that with COVID happening, it has shown how much of the disparities are already there. Uh, I think the funny thing for me is I took a diversity like training a few months before we went into the quarantine and I remember feeling so angry after I left because they gave us all of these statistics just from school to healthcare, social economic status, all of that. They gave us all the stats for it and we were consistently like the higher range for everything, high mortality rate for having babies and just anything when it came to healthcare as it related to black people was just out of this world. And I was there with white colleagues and they're just looking like, T, I'm so sorry. Like, don't be sorry to me. Like, let's try to figure out something to make it different because it shouldn't be like that. And that's why I wanted to talk about it and have this conversation with Corey. One, because she's a huge advocate, period. Like she's been an advocate since the day I've met her. She's talking about us meeting in chemistry, which was a funny experience, but even with us becoming Delta, she's always made it her point to try to do something as it relates to public health. So what are your thoughts, Corey, on like the climate right now as it relates to healthcare and the different disparities and just trying to function in healthcare? Um, I think as it relates to America and healthcare, black communities is status quo, um, it's trash quite frankly. We have this weird, dysfunctional, but symbiotic relationship between the Black community and healthcare. I used to say, as many know, but I'm not going to assume that a lot of people 
syphilis, you know, but things such as understanding like what untreated syphilis can do that came from experiments on black men. Even the contraceptives that we have today that came from experiments on Puerto Rican women. Right. The gynecological procedures that we have today, those were developed without anesthesia on black slaves. So uh, there's a lot of exploitation and of course foundational establishment that came off the strength of black people. And, um, you know, that contributes to the systems of racism that we have within this country. And because those things exist, they do take a toll on us and our bodies. You know, energy is transferred, it's not created or destroyed. So when you're exposed to those things over and over and over again, it does take a negative toll. And it's just ironic that the conditions that were created and that we were placed in create these disparities that we need to go to the hospital to be treated for, but us going to the hospital doesn't necessarily guarantee that we'll get the best care or that we won't be, you know, given the treatment that we need. So it's 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 a really ironic and dysfunctional relationship. I mean, yeah, when you put it like that, I haven't thought about it in that sense, of course, but it, I mean, I can imagine just how much goes into all of this. And we know like systematic racism we already know it exists. We can't say it doesn't exist. I know a lot of people are trying to fight that right now with what's happening in the world with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. However, it is a thing. And I think we need to recognize it as such because it does hinder a lot of people from getting the adequate care that they need and deserve. Most of us aren't trained to be a doctor. We don't know anything about medicine. We don't know what's the right course of action versus the wrong. We just know what our bodies feel, which brings me to my own personal experience. People don't know this yet, outside of like my immediate close people or people that I've shared. Um, but I was diagnosed with MS, which is multiple sclerosis, in last September, September 2019. Yeah, it's almost a year already, that's crazy. But I was diagnosed last September and that experience highlighted a lot for me within the healthcare system and just how doctors can look at you visibly in pain and telling them that you're in pain. I mean, for me, it was feelings of numbness. It started in my hand and it went from my hand into my arm. And then before I knew it, it was the whole left side of my body was numb. And I'm looking at people and I'm telling them this and they're like, oh, you have tennis elbow. No, ma'am, that's not that's not what I have. And so, because I'm not a doctor, I just said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll try the recommendations y'all give me and I'll come back in a week like y'all said if it isn't any different and it did progress within a week and it's just like once they realized how serious it was and my scans came back then for them it was oh oh you weren't joking you really are probably in a lot of pain though so for me I know after having that experience it really actually pissed me off because had I not been strong-willed as I am and you know I am Corey and open about what I was experiencing and knowing my body which is very important, I could have been like a lot of other people with MS that don't get diagnosed until years and years later, which now that I think about it, that actually was my case. Because when I got to my neurologist, who is my specialist now, she told me that she knows I've had it for years, which means things like, for you, Corey, you know, when they try to say I had costochondritis, which is just like inflammation of the chest. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. Or these different things that I experienced that now I'm like, oh, that's what that was. But I didn't know that. And that was back in what, 2013? 2012, yeah. somewhere around there. So that was a big part of why I wanted to have this conversation. And I wanna know from you, like what have you experienced and seen 
as it relates to racial disparities with this. One thing I want to elaborate on is what you were saying in regards to when you first presented to the doctor's office had with, with your symptoms that you were complaining of and them only thinking of different things. I'm about to go to kind of into medical terms right now. But um, one of the things that we learn about in school is called like differential diagnosis. So a patient comes in complaining of a certain thing and you in your mind as you're listening to them tell their story, create a list of what the things could possibly be. Now, medical school curriculums are supposed to have what's called cultural competency. That's something that we're supposed to learn as we go through school. I think that's difficult to do when in the same way um, now elementary school kids are reading books that trivialize slavery or say it was indentured servitude or whatever BS it was that it's not. Right. They were enslaved. They were forced to do things. I think it, it kind of applies to medical school as well. Like you're trying to teach cultural competency, but you're just telling us how to provide care basically with the disparities that already exist. Right. So that's where I think people such as myself need to come in and be like, well, actually, this is how you culture, you're culturally competent when caring for a black patient. These are the things that are specific to our culture that you need to consider when speaking with them, when educating them, or even when they complain of them. Women in general present, can present with symptoms of a um, heart attack differently than the traditional like shortness of breath, oh my chest hurts, my neck hurts. Um, it can be a headache, it can be nausea, it can be anything. And I think in the same way that we need to take care of consideration like, oh, this is a woman, you know, it might not be what we think it is. The same thing needs to happen with your black patients right. when you're caring for them. And I think if that would have happened, then maybe you know, we could have got you care a lot sooner and it just really reinforces the need for us to be present. And culturally competent. I mean, it's the same thing for us. And we do have things, too, that we use to kind of say, like, it's this diagnosis over that. But at the same time, I think we preach and say cultural competence in our fields, but we don't really live by it. It's like that one thing that we say out loud that we know that has to be said in right. order to feel inclusive and everybody is a part but it's not necessarily what we're doing. And I know for, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people go years and years and years without even knowing that they have something because they've gone in multiple times complaining of things like headaches. Or I think about when we were in school, when we were both still living in Greensboro, I think we were in grad school at that point and a sore of us had passed away. Mm -hmm. She was complaining of headaches and she said, I'm just gonna take a nap. And she took a nap and that was it. Mm -hmm. But it's like she had told people before and it's things like that where we put people in danger of one, just deciding not to go to the doctor at all because there are a lot of us who don't even go. Mm -hmm. Or two, just deal with what we're dealing with and just wait for the doctors to decide that it's serious enough to give us a diagnosis that actually matches what we're managing and dealing with. Exactly. And to answer your question about uh, racism I've experienced, so I've experienced macroaggression and microaggression. I think the microaggressions are by far the worst, and I'll explain why in a moment. But macroaggression is like standard stuff. And when I say standard, I mean when it happened to me, I wasn't distraught or upset because I know these people exist with their mentality. So you have the patients who, when you go in and introduce yourself, regardless of how competent you are, like, oh no, I'm not gonna be cared for by you. Mm -hmm. And some people may interpret that is, and I've had colleagues say, oh, well, you know, we're students, so that's probably why, okay, but he's not keeping that same energy with Johnny over here, who's a white male, and who I'm over here running laps around. 
So that's the macroaggression type stuff. The microaggression type stuff, the reason that I say it's probably worse is because when you experience it, you experience it so much that it's, it's crazy. So you start to second guess, like, is this really a racism thing? Which it is. It is. Everyone should know these things that you experience. That that is what it is. But it's just like like so crazy. You feel like you're in a twilight zone that you try to talk yourself out of like what you're experiencing. Right. So for me, we have things that we do when we go into the hospital called rounding. So for our patients that are admitted to the hospital, we go in every morning. We see them. We discuss their case and we talk about what we're gonna do to get them feeling better for the day. Right. Um, while you're you're on your rounds, you, you get what's called pimps. So the attending physician, which is your boss boss, they're gonna ask you questions off the rip to make sure that you know your information. And I had an attending who, you know, there was a group of us, but for whatever reason, his focus every time he asked questions was always on the white males. Right. And you don't have to raise your hand to answer the question, you just answer it. I would answer and he would literally still be with me. At first, you can say like, oh, well, you know, like I'm short. People who haven't seen me in person, I'm five feet, if that. So maybe he didn't see me, but that here we are a week later and you're still doing the same thing. So how I first was like, oh, well, maybe it's because I'm short. Like those things, that's why I, I, I feel like microaggressions are worse because they're, they're just subtle enough that they could be something else, but no, they're mm-hmm. not. Those yeah. things really exist. But it's a real thing too. And we talked about this, but just like even with me, when I do therapy with certain people, like they'll they'll say things. And for me, I, in my mind, I'm like, nobody in their right mind would say that out loud and think that it's okay. So that's when I started mm-hmm. to question like, nah, it's, they didn't mean it that way. They just used the wrong word. This is actually what they meant and try explaining it away. But I think mm-hmm. a big part of that too, when it comes to racial disparities and anything, especially like with the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happening, like allies are so important and people outside of us that are in the field that can say, oh man, like, no, Tiana, that was racist and I'm sorry that happened to you. And I've had colleagues say that because I'll mention stuff and it's just matter of fact to me and they're like, that's not cool. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Now I know to watch out for that next time. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine for med students when it's people coming in and out all the time, you don't see the same faces every single day Mm -hmm. I can imagine that it is really hard not to just internalize that oppression and be so used to it that you don't acknowledge it when it happens Mm -hmm. and so the other thing that makes it difficult is your last two years in so the first two years in medical school you spend like in the classroom learning the basics you learn how the body works you learn what happens when the body stops working correctly right you start to learn how to fix those things your last two years you're in the hospital So you're applying the book knowledge that you've learned the last two years. And a lot of your evaluations come from people, like your superiors, and it's a very subjective thing. So you're very cognizant of just everything that you do because anything can be perceived as anything by anyone. And you don't want that to be reflected poorly on your evaluation at the end of that rotation. And it may be, honestly, that you've never you never did anything. Like you were just being yourself, you're a professional, mm-hmm. you came early, you left late or whatever. But if an attending physician perceives you as a certain way, then that's just what it is and that's what goes on paper. So I've even found myself, and Tiana knows like I am antisocial and super social at the same time. You're an introverted extrovert. 
So I'm social and antisocial, meaning if I don't really know you, I don't really have too much to say, but once I get to know you, I love to talk to you all the time, a lot. But I found myself on in the hospital, like smiling extra hard. And during lunchtime when I want to take a break, because I've been here since four o'clock this morning and all my feet running around the hospital and I just want to be silent and reset. Yeah giggling at the small talk and the jokes and, and things like that. And even doing things like laughing at comments that attendees make that I feel like were not cool or making me uncomfortable. Still laughing at them because I don't want to be perceived as like, ooh, she's angry or she's not yeah. personable or she's not a team player. So again, micro things, right? right. Looking at it, it's just like, that's not a big deal. But when I really reflect on the reasons that I did those things, you know, that's why, or even with my hair, Ooh, I, I think probably one. last year was the first time that I really, like, was washing, I mean, wa- um, rocking, like, my wash and goes, like, without a care, like, I wasn't doing all protective styles and all wigs, I was just like, yo, this is me, this is, this is what it is, because it's interesting that even, I've worked at a lot of community hospitals where, we have black people, but they may have come from, like I've worked at community hospitals that have like a lot of East African people mm. and they tend to wear like just their natural curly throat and they don't even think anything about it. Right. And nothing is said to them about it. Or we have people who are Sikhs, that's their religion. So they wear their head wraps and nobody thinks anything about it. But I still find myself second guessing like as a black American, like, Ooh, am I, this is coming off too aggressive if I wear my natural hair? like this like you know so yeah I mean that's a real thing it's definitely a real thing and I will say even for me so like if I take the time to do my wash and go you know it's defined it's gonna juicy everything if I don't and it's just been some days and I probably need to redo it and it's in its fullest extent then that's just is what it is and I remember being in a session and I was going over these like personality cards with one of my kids. It helps them understand what their viewpoint is. So like for you, you'll say you're a black and white thinker, whereas there are other ones that are valid as well. And so for her, one of the one cards that she picked was a black girl on the card. And the black mm-hmm. girl had an Afro mm-hmm. and it was the client and the client's mom. And all I heard, and it is like, is one of those moments was like, she didn't say that out loud, did she? Mm-hmm. She looked at the kid and said, oh my goodness, look at you. You would be so pretty, even with the afro. And I said, wow. So the kid laughed until she realized what was said. And it was one of those moments where it confirmed to me, like, you're not tripping. That's not okay for her mm-hmm. to say. And so she repeated it again. And the kid was like, no. Mm-hmm don't do that and so it's always made me self-conscious like sometimes I'll even wear like turbans to work especially if I don't feel like doing my hair we have a very relaxed setting at my job people are liberal about a lot of things so they don't give me a hard time about it but clients when they come in I'm like oh if this is my first time with this client and they're a client of another race maybe I won't wear my turban today Mm -hmm. maybe I'll try that with them another day so it's hard it's not. And even the fact that there's, like, I know New York was one of the most recent states that passed, literally passed legislation stating that it is illegal to discriminate on someone because of the hair that grows out of their head. Scout. That is insane. A law had to be passed to allow people to be who they are. Mm-hmm. Literally, this is how I was born. This is how my hair comes out of my head. It right. was a law to say 
you cannot discriminate because of that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, people can color their hair any color of the rainbow, and it's fine. There's somebody at my job consistently, and that's when I was like, oh, okay, I can wear hair color here. Mm-hmm. Like, not normal. Like, oh, you have red today, or oh, you dyed your hair a little blonde. I'm talking platinum green, mm-hmm. purple, pink, and I was like, okay. I'm gonna try it out. Bought me some hair paint wax, put it in my hair. Okay, nobody has anything to say? Cool. Now I know that this is appropriate and I can do this. But it is unfortunate because it makes you not be your full self. Mm-hmm. And I think that has been a part of my journey right now. And I was actually having this conversation with my supervisor yesterday is how do I bring my full self into the room and still be professional mm-hmm. about doing it mm-hmm. and not have to second guess my tone of voice when I talk to certain clients because I've even noticed that if I'm meeting with this family, I sound a little different than when I'm meeting with this family and I mm-hmm. joke and laugh with this family different than this family. And it's not anything that they're doing, but because of how society is and how we've been conditioned, for lack of better words, it's just always in the back of my mind that I have to be at a certain point. Mm-hmm to be perceived as professional and like I know what I'm talking about and like I'm a good therapist and I went to school for this and I do this every day but let me put in a little extra effort for y'all so you know that I'm serious Mm -hmm. and uh, you saying that made me think about one rotation I did I it was so rotations usually go your fourth year of your choice and they're usually for a month at a time they can be shorter they can be longer it's standard they're a, a month and I left that Friday. I think I did have a wash and go, and I came back that Monday, and I had straight backs like down my butt, down to my butt. And of course, you know, everybody was confused. And I often struggle with like being offended versus educating because the residents that I were with, like one girl was from India, like for real. She was maybe. Uh, had been there been in America like four years mm-hmm. and she really hadn't been around black people like that and then the other two were white so I guess I tried to put myself in their perspective like yeah. yo she how does this happen this is only two days and so I do struggle with like like one why does it even matter why okay matter? I changed my hair like why do we have to have a whole conversation about this why do you feel you need to touch me and I also have to navigate like saying don't touch my damn hair without saying it that way mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. annoying it's annoying i actually <laughs> got a warning like that when i first started a job i won't say what job i started and they were like hey by the way be mindful of this person because they like to touch hair and i said thank you thank you for that because i need to know that i don't want to like see and it's it's weird that you don't want to be the rude one for somebody being weird rude to you it's so right. weird to me like why do we have to overcompensate? And it makes me feel or wonder how this translates into patients mm-hmm. and how the patients feel when it comes to these racial disparities and how much that comes out when working with them. Like we talked about earlier, people come in, they say that they have certain things and based on how they look is how we'll move about how we handle that. Mm-hmm. Or what they don't know, because I had, and again, it's, it's a difficult dynamic to navigate because medicine is hierarchical right as a medical student not you're the peon but you are the peon but not in a demeaning way like you're you're the baby you right have this very basic knowledge you don't you have very limited experience so you are there to learn but there are certain cultural competencies that i may have over my white or indian or irish counterpart right um, I, we had a patient come in 
I don't even remember what she was there for. But she was a typical black chick who had big lips. My resident thought she was having an allergic reaction to something because her lips were big. Wow. And I was like, no, those are just her lips. So she imagine if I wasn't there, she would have done this whole workup, you know, giving her, you know, epinephrine because she's thinking she's having an allergic reaction to something and that is just the genetic makeup of a lot of black, black people. people. So I need to be present. That's just Corey Bogs. Yeah. That is mind blowing to me. I was trying to figure out the right words because I was gonna say something different that's not helpful for anybody. But it's it's mind blowing to me that people can be so far removed from another person's experience or their culture or just how people interact with each other based off of where they're from or where you were raised. And we don't consider that when people come in and we make these assumptions that sometimes leads to the death of people. We know Serena Williams with her having her baby, that almost went fatal. I have a family member where if we weren't there and had not advocated for her during her labor, we would have lost her too. And it's like, you have to go above and beyond to make people see see you, believe you, mm -hmm. and know that this is something real. Even with me having MS, and me and you have talked about this, and I thought the same thing. I thought MS was a white woman's disease. Mm -hmm. We did a project on that actually when we were becoming Deltas. <laughs> and that it was funny because I knew, like once I figured out what they thought it might be, it started to make sense to me because we have researched this before. So I knew what it looked like. But for doctors to think that, oh, it primarily affects white women, they don't consider that when they first look at you and say, hey, what's wrong? Oh, it's carpal tunnel. That was the other thing they told me. Carpal tunnel, you have tennis elbow. Well, maybe it's this. No, it's none of those things. I had cut my finger um, on a mug. A mug broke and I slit my finger. And so that's like days after that is when I started feeling numb. So in my mind, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And they tried to go with that too, but that was not the case. But I've since learned, since doing my own research, that it affects African-American women, one, more than anybody. Mm -hmm. And just with African-Americans in general, or black people in general, or people of color, mm -hmm. the symptoms are more severe and mm -hmm. have more severe outcomes as well. Mm -hmm. And so like, they don't tell you that. Like none of my doctors have sat down with me and said, hey, as a black woman, this is what you should expect. Mm -hmm. This is what might happen. This is what it may look like. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of other people probably have to do their own research, which isn't helpful because we know we can diagnose ourselves with anything from cancer to leprosy, mm -hmm. just from looking on WebMD. Mm -hmm. It's very unfortunate. What advice would you give? Like, how do we advocate for change and to make this not racist? I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word to use, but... Um... So I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's hard. I think actually though, the onus is probably more so on those of us in the medical community. Those of us who are black, have the black experience, black culture and our allies as well. I've reflected on that a lot over the last week with everything happening with George Floyd. I think in as many police brutality cases as we've witnessed in our lifetime, which is crazy because I'm only freaking 31. This is probably the most allyship I've visually seen, not to say that it did not exist, right. but that I've openly seen of all the situations that's happened. Right. And I appreciate that. And so I think that same thing needs to, that same strategy needs to be applied to the medical community. So we, 
black providers need to be present. We need to speak up when our colleagues are not doing something correctly, whether it be from ignorance or just acting on their own bias. We need our allies to do the same thing. And I say the onus on the medical community because, you know, well, probably not so much now, but that's a whole another conversation for another day. You know, the field of medicine traditionally is like really respected, like, oh, you're super knowledgeable, you went to school forever, you know, you know what you're talking about. But honestly, medicine, even though it's a science, is still a moving target. Like so many things are changing, so many advances are being made that even how you would care for someone five years ago, we don't even do it like that anymore, present day. So there may be a situation where a patient honestly does know, like this person has been with themselves since the day they were born, 24 seven. So you need to take that into consideration when you care for them. Um, and so I think that that is important to you. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I did wanna say, the other reason I feel like the onus is on our medical community is because the reason that the disparities exist is, and the reason that I think a lot of times patients are hesitant to advocate for themselves is because of the medical community. So the American um, Association of Medical Colleges, uh, they produced a report earlier this year that said 50% of all non-people of color medical providers believe the fallacy that black people have a decreased perception of pain. 50%, so one out of every two doctors that you see that are not black will look at you and say, look at you or me, and say like, oh, she don't have no pain. She's exaggerating, she just wants the oxy. Ain't nothing wrong with her. Yep. So just imagine how many people are coming into contact with these providers and their care is being altered because of this bias that these people have. Yeah. So. I told you, my doctor, her whole, my original doctor, my primary, her whole demeanor, and conversation changed with me when she realized that I was not over-exaggerating. I was due to go out of the country actually the week. So it happened and I was supposed to go on vacation, but stuff got really bad real fast. And I was like, oh my God, do I not go? And my mom was like, go, because you don't know what they're gonna say when you get back. But even then, like leading up to me leaving, she was calling me nonstop on her personal cell phone, following up on doctor's visits. She was calling neurologists around the city to try to squeeze me in. So luckily for me, I was able to get an appointment a week later. We know in neurology, that ain't, that's not it. Mm -hmm. You have to wait like months and weeks to get in mm -hmm. there. And even when I did get in there and they're asking like how, what my pain level is and how am I feeling? What would I number it on a Likert scale? And I'm telling them all these things. And then when you give me meds, you give me the lowest dosage. I mean, the lowest dosage that you can give me, which in one sense I can understand you don't want to start me off on something heavy. Because you're new, but... But the lowest? So then I would come back and they're like, well, how are you feeling? The same. <laughs> Nothing has changed for me. I don't know, like, I don't know how to advocate differently. I don't know what to say to make y'all believe me. I mean, we can get on Miss Frizzle's school bus and you can come inside my body and you can see yourself. I don't know what else to tell you. And it's very hard to sit there. And I know a lot of times I left, like, in tears because I'm like, I don't know what else to say I don't know what else to do I don't like when I tell you stuff you tell me it's weird and it doesn't sound like a symptom of something but if somebody else has that same exact symptom then you're more likely to recognize it mm -hmm. so I, I mean I definitely think it is on the medical community and I want to encourage people to be more vocal where they can and I know it's a hard thing to talk about race in a workplace mm -hmm. but it is very important in the work that we do and I hate that we take it out of that because it mm -hmm. takes away the people that we work with. 
mm-hmm. when we don't consider what their culture has contributed to whatever they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. So that's just on me. But what advice would you give for like patients going to the doctor and to get their needs met, have people hear them? What are some things you would suggest for them? I think being persistent, I mean, I think just having the courage to speak up to their provider. I mean, because one, they're not, they're not gonna know if you don't say anything, but two, you know, documentation is a part, an important part of what we do. So if something happens to my patient and it really catches me off guard and I go back and look at the records and what I've been documenting, I'm like, damn, they've been telling me this for the last six, seven months. Yep. Like, I, I need to, I need to be better. Like, mm-hmm. I need to do better. So, yeah, I mean, that's what you pay for. You pay for, you pay for medical care. Right. So that's what you receive. So I would just say, and I know it's easier said than done, but like really push through that discomfort because it literally is like at worst your livelihood, but at a minimum, you deserve the courtesy to receive the best healthcare. Like healthcare is not um, a privilege. No, it's not. Everyone needs it. So. That's why I made. That's why I made the name. I was trying to. I was telling y'all, trying to figure out what am I gonna name this episode. But really, that Black Health Matters, because it shouldn't be. The statistics should not be this high. Mm-hmm. We should not lose as many people as we do. Mm-hmm. And it should not have to take for people sometimes to get irate and angry, for people to understand what they're saying. Because then now I'm the angry Black man and or woman that is enforcing what you already believe about me anyway and so now Mm -hmm. i'm less likely if not at all to get what i need so i definitely hope that some change can happen i know with people like you on the forefront and i tell you this all the time i'm so happy that people get to see you and that when they come i know that you're going to take them seriously you're going to hear them out for what they're saying and not make it anything different not make it about race not assume Mm -hmm. that you know they can handle it they're cool they've done this before their body no Nobody's body can do that all the time. Exactly. So, this is the portion of the show that I like to call us advocate. So, if you mm-hmm. could change anything about the state of mental health within Black and Brown communities, what would that one thing be? I will hyper spotlight it and make it specific to like within medicine. Go ahead. We don't get grace in medicine, right? So, we take a lot of tests. We get tested on everything. Mm-hmm. On everything. And a lot of times, the specialty you end up in or even where you match for residency. So let me back up just so people don't get confused. After we finish medical school, we decide which specialty we're going into. So how Tiana has a neurologist or a primary care doctor or when you're in the hospital, internal medicine doctor, you have to receive specialized training for that. So you go to what's called residency and you stay there for another three to seven years. So by the time you become a full board certified doctor, you've studied medicine for like, you know, less than 10 to 12 years. Um, and so when you're taking these tests, it's not it's not good enough to just pass it. Like if you barely pass an exam or, or a major exam in medical school, it's just as bad as like not passing. And it really, it dictates like your medical future, your career. And so while it should be difficult because when you start to practice, you're dealing with you know, people's lives, like you need to know what you're talking about. It's difficult because everyone acts like they have it together. So you feel the pressure to act the same way, regardless of how bad you're struggling. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and I think that really makes it worse because medical school in itself is already hard yeah the first time that I really worked with Tiana on some mental health stuff was when I first started medical school back in late 2016 early 2017 and at my particular school we actually had a couple people who had committed suicide and murdered um murder suicide so it's like a real thing the the intense environment the judgment the lack of grace in medical school and it's not even from just your colleagues like your professors put that pressure on you as well it's it's a lot and it's not healthy my saving grace has been like my family my line sisters like they are freaking amazing amazing and then my mentors within medical school um there's like two or three of them black female physicians they've been there they've done that and so they get exactly what I'm saying when I call them crying, like, um, I'm good, I'm jumping out. I'm not, I'm good on being a doctor. I'll go back to what I was doing. Cause this is too much. But yeah, that's something that- and That's really huge, know. coming from you. Yeah. Even with Tiana saying, coming from me, that's because Corey always has it together. She gonna know what's going on with everybody, including herself. She's gonna be there early. She's gonna stay late. She's always gonna have it together. But it's a struggle. Yeah, I mean, it's not for the faint of heart mm -mm. whatsoever. So with the students that you said uh, committed suicide, were they just? I believe both of them were. One was a fourth year medical student who was oh, practicing or he was doing a rotation in New York, I believe. And I can't remember the details of the other one, but the saddest thing for me outside of the people obviously who lost their lives was that I didn't find it unbelievable like it's it's it is hard it's just it's freaking hard and it's yeah. overwhelming and like I said the environment that's created in medicine it makes you feel like you're a punk if you showcase that you're struggling or you need help mm -hmm. or maybe you shouldn't be here it, it's that hard for you to understand these concepts and it's just like they always joke and say medical school is like drinking from a water fountain i'm not a water fountain a fire hydrant excuse me Ooh. it's like you're just catching enough just catching yeah. enough and it's like metaphorical in regards to the information that you learn but literally like going through the process like you're just catching your breath as soon as you catch your breath from one thing it's another thing and another thing and another thing so yeah, I definitely think that we need more grace. I've made an attempt to be more transparent about my journey, about, you know, challenges that I face and I've overcome. Like one of our pro fights who, she's in another medical profession, but she reached out to me after I shared on my Instagram about challenges I had with, with test taking, saying that she was in a similar situation and that me sharing that was like, wow, like, dang, Corey's going through this and she made it like, yo, I can do it. Yeah. So it's like you don't even realize. And this person is like someone who has her stuff together. So when she reached out, I was like, what? Whatever. So you just never know. Yeah. I think one thing that's important, and I think you started talking about when you started realizing how important mental health was with the suicide rates in uh, at Ross. But I think what stood out for me is that you're a part of so many different groups that the target audience is clinicians of color or doctors of color or med students of color and being able to have events like the one that you had where I did the video and talked about mental health and different things to kind of consider and how people could take care of themselves and what that looked like. I think having spaces like that is important. Mm -hmm. Even at my job and something that I want to carry on even when I finish there 
is having reflective supervision, which just means we're going to staff cases, but we're going to staff it from the standpoint of how I feel mm-hmm. and how working with this person affected me. And I guess for y'all, like in med school, what it feels like to work with certain teachers or work mm-hmm. with certain doctors and the effect that that has on you guys and you know how you were able to get through that moment and what were your exact feelings during that moment and I will mm-hmm. warn you that it has the ability to get really sad really fast mm-hmm. but I will also say within those it normalizes the experience for everybody else because it's not just me going through this yes I'm the one talking yes I'm the one crying but I know it's not just my story exactly. like every other person in here probably has the same exact thing that I'm not that I'm talking about if not worse mm-hmm. so I definitely think having spaces like that, and I, I hope it's at more schools mm-hmm. that people do have that to be able to talk because it's important. Mm-hmm. Like it takes a huge toll on your psyche to become a doctor. Yep, and you can't pour from an empty cup, so you can't okay. be out here giving your best to patients when you don't have it inside. Struggling yourself. That's a real statement, Corey. That is a real statement. When I first got my diagnosis, those were the hardest months of my life as a therapist. Mm-hmm. hardest because I'm sitting here giving y'all my best and literally that is all I have once this session is over I'm at home and I'm back laying on the couch like mm-hmm. and it, it's sad because it started making me think about how often do you think your client sits on the other side of you and wonder how you're doing mm-hmm. probably don't and not not to say that in a selfish way but right. I mean, they're coming to you because they have these problems and they need help moving through them in process. Right. This right. person is coming to the hospital because something is bothering them and they need that help. Yeah. Um, but I think, and I want to give a kudos to us, like black folks, I think that our, this movement of us really taking care of ourselves and speaking about like mental health and working out and eating right and meditating and, and grounding and getting sunlight, I think that that is important and I think it's making us realize that we're all human and we need time to like reset like it's a lot it is a lot it's a lot being an adult it's a lot more being a black adult so yeah it's so hard (laughs) it's so hard that has been my testimony as of late being an adult is hard and to be quite honest if I could choose a gambler I might just be a kid because I don't want to do this anymore (laughs) okay well Corey do you want to provide any information for people to find you? I know you say you share a lot about your experience, and I think that could be helpful for other people to follow you and yes. stay in the loop. So on Instagram, my name is Corey Diem. So it's at underscore C-O-R-E-Y period D-I-E-M underscore. Follow me. I'll follow back. Great. I appreciate you for coming up here, Corey. Couldn't imagine doing this episode with anybody else. You know I be your sister. Yeah, girl. As always, I appreciate y'all for tuning in to the Cult for the Culture podcast. I'm your host, Tiana Renee, and I'm out this thing. Bye, y'all. Hey, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tiana Renee here. To make sure you stay up to date on all information related to Cult for the Culture, be sure to follow us on social media. We are on Instagram at Cult for the Culture podcast, Twitter at Cult, the number four, the culture, and on Facebook at Cult for the Culture podcast. As always, I appreciate you for tuning in. Bye, y'all.